Good morning. Uh, chapter 6, verse 45 to 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for all they saw, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Good morning, my friends. This is an interesting piece of scripture. Mark ends by saying, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and the fishes. Jesus, he, he tells this story about Jesus walking on water because they don't understand about the last miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And it's because their hearts were hard. And we'll look at, we'll look at what that means. Uh, I'm a Baptist, so I'm not a dancer. I have seen it. <laughs> I can appreciate it, that it's, it has this lovely cadence to it. Um, but I don't have the feet for it, I suppose. Um, I, I would like to say something around the realm that, that the gospel in our lives is something like a dance, though, uh, where, where we learn a new thing about God, and we have to respond. And as we learn more about God, we are required to submit more about what we know about ourselves. And it's this step after step after step in our lives that changes us, that uh, completes us as we walk this road. So this is an interesting passage that uh, reveals more about our Lord. In the past couple messages, Mark has pointed uh, to the shadow of death that is cast upon all who believe and follow the Lord. John the Baptist was killed for sharing the word of God. And we know that from church history, all or almost all the, the apostles were killed for carrying the word of God outward into a hostile world. And even as our Savior uh, considered himself a lamb before the slaughter, so too we must live our lives as lives of sacrifice, even unto death. I want to begin with a story from the Old Testament. It's probably familiar to you of a prophet of prophets, the last one in his own estimation, scared to die, running away in need of a savior. In 1 Kings, Elijah flees from the persecution of King Ahab and Jezebel and hides on a mountain. Chapter 19, verse 9 says, he there, he came to a cave and lodged in it. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And I don't think Elijah actually does this, because later on he's still in the cave. God says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke pieces of the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake shook the mountain, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out. Now he goes out, stands at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And God goes on to explain his plan for how he's going to preserve and protect Elijah through the coming storms of his life and how he's actually kept 7,000 Israelites from bowing to other gods. The Lord passes by and is in the whisper. My friends, my dear family, God sends the storms. He rocks the mountains but he also sends his protection, his very presence. That's what we're going to consider today. It's part of this dance. We serve an incredible God. He's known as author, creator, sustainer, and concluder. And if there's one main thing that I've learned about God in the past few years, one thing that makes me more excited than all the others, it's about his absolute sovereignty. God is all-powerful. We sang about it today. He's all-knowing. He's in all places. He's above all time. He's holy. He's loving. Our God is king. And he's in control of all things. Again and again, if there is one reminder that I need and am compelled to share with you and with others in need, it's that God is good and he's in total control. The blessings, the struggles, the detours, the storms in our lives are all in his sovereign control. A central verse that captures this, that conveys it so well, is Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. He is powerful. He is loving. He is able and good. And he gives to each of us exactly what we need, when we need it. 
To the Christian, this is encouragement, pure and true. To the rest of the world, this is offensive. This is scary. The gospel, the cross shows us that God is good and he is able. God is good and he is able because God is good and he is able. He gives you all that you need for your good and his glory. And as we look at the storm that the disciples fight with, we can know that it was given to them because that's what they needed. Matthew 5, 45, the second half of it says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Just as natural storms are fully in God's control, so too are internal storms and relational storms and all of the things that we fight with. We are to trust him because he is good and he is able. So today in Mark, we've reached the second storm narrative. In the first one, in Mark 4.35, Jesus was asleep in the boat as the disciples fought for their lives against the raging sea. And upon waking, Jesus speaks, peace, be still. And immediately there was a perfect stillness on the sea. Here in this passage, Jesus is not with the disciples, but as they fight against the raging sea, he goes out to them. He meets them where they are. Having just fed the 5,000 plus his 12 disciples, Scripture says, uh, Mark 6.45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. The feeding of the 5,000 pivots around this central idea that Jesus is the good shepherd, giving to the crowds and his disciples exactly what they need. First, the truth he teaches them, and then food he feeds them. Now again, we see Jesus guiding his followers to their next lesson. With speed, he hurries them off. Go to Bethsaida. I will meet you later. And they listen, and they set out while Jesus dismisses the crowds. Scripture doesn't tell us where they were, where the feeding miracle takes place. It's only described as a desolate place. So we don't know where the disciples are when they leave Jesus. But what we do know is that they don't end up in Bethsaida. They were either not able to go to Bethsaida, which is kind of on the top of the Sea of Galilee, uh, or they were totally blown off course and go the opposite direction of it. Because a few verses later, we find out that they actually end up in Geth. Gen- I can do this. Genereset. It's not my first language. I can tell you, I can tell you this, that in my life, God has required me time and again to say yes to one destination in order that I would be willing and prepared to arrive at another. And that's what happens to the disciples. God told me to say yes to Bible college so that I would then say yes to secular university. He made me say yes to a science degree in order that I would then say yes to the pastorate. And it doesn't make any sense. 
but it's a lesson in willingness. He made me say yes to move away from the only urban neighborhood that I knew and come out to the country in order to prepare me to live and serve in Camrose. God has completely shaped my life by having me say yes to this over here so that then I would say yes to this over here. And maybe you have a similar experience where the seemingly biggest decisions of your life are really only stepping stones to more significant ones. God is good. This teaches us obedience to say, yes, Lord, thy will be done. Verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And this is not a strange thing. We consider Jesus a man of prayer. But it might be interesting to you that Mark only records Jesus praying three times. Each time it's in a moment of crisis. And he goes away alone and at night. The first is in Mark chapter 1, following the gathering of the whole city at his door for help and healing. The second is found after the feeding of the 5,000, of which uh, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus withdrew because the people wanted to make him king by force. And the third is in Mark chapter 14, just before his crucifixion. Jesus leaves the crowd to spend time in prayer with his Father. It would appear that Jesus goes to the Father in prayer then each time the opportunity to avoid the cross appears. Each time he is presented with the opportunity to circumvent the hardship of his mission, he spends extended amounts of time in prayer. From these three examples, in some way, Jesus could have gained the whole world without having endured the suffering of the cross. Fame and the excitement of the crowds could have given him a kingdom of sorts. If we consider the last and biggest of the devil's temptations in the wilderness, he offers that Jesus could rule all the kingdoms of the world just by bowing down and worshiping him. And it would seem that to rule all without having to suffer rejection and dying might have held a certain temptation for Christ. I think avoiding dying would be something that I would be tempted toward as well. So what Christ does, he gains his strength through communion in prayer with the Father. To which I ask you, what tempts you? What is the crisis in your life? And do you go to the Father and spend time in prayer adequately over it? And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth hour, which is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And about the fourth hour of the night watch, he came to them walking on the sea. 
when Jesus finished praying, he looked out and was still able to see his disciples rowing against the waves. The Greek word here is bathanizo, and it means torture in the rest of the Bible. Their strain against the sea was torturous. The emphasis here seems not to be on them being in danger like the first storm, but that they were being scourged and abused by their efforts to follow Jesus' own instructions. And Mark most likely writes this using these words as a reminder to all disciples of Christ that in the hardest, most difficult times, God knows you and he loves you and he sees you and he's with you. He is in sovereign control of every storm. Though you be tortured and buffeted, straining to stay afloat, he is in control. So then comes perhaps the most surprising of all miracles. Jesus walks on water. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the wind poses no obstacle to him, and the waves provide a firm footing as he marches across the sea. Now many try to say that Jesus found a shallow place to walk over, or that the path he chose was near the shore. But seasoned mariners would not be frightened by a man taking a stroll on the beach. No, they saw Jesus walking on top of the water, treading where there was no footing. They witnessed him doing what only God can do. Job and Habakkuk know the power and wrath of God and right. This is Job 9, 6 to 8. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Habakkuk similarly. 3 verses 15. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. To these, we could add the many verses that tell us how God holds back the sea so that his people can walk on dry ground. But in these verses, it is saying that God walks on water. When Jesus walks on water, he is showing that he's on God's turf. He is God doing what only God does. And about the fourth watch of night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. The disciples had no category for what they thought they saw, so they said it's a ghost, a phantom. When I was a young guy, junior high, our youth group played a missing persons night at West Ed. I would have been 13 or 14. And we were given a list of maybe eight or 10 people from our church to find in the big mall. So I went along with a couple guys, Chris and Jeff, and we went looking. First of all, we found an old missionary couple who were in their 60s, they found a wheelchair and a sweater vest and a shawl, and they were looking like they were in their 80s. We found another couple that were dressed in leathers and carrying bike helmets, and we were having a hoot. 
Then from maybe about 30 or 40 feet away, we saw our senior pastor. He was walking away. He was dressed in cowboy boots and a hat, jeans, jean jacket. And we ran up to him. And from maybe nine feet away, we called out, Pastor Mark, Pastor Mark. And when he spun around, this guy had a thick black beard and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And he said, what do you want? And the three of us split. We went in three different directions, just motoring, terrified, because we called out the wrong person. Our hearts were pounding, scared, moving quick, until we heard Pastor Mark's high-pitched, gleeful laugh. And we turned around in our confusion to find our pastor laughing at us with total abandon. We didn't recognize the man. Fear meant that we didn't take the time to study him. Fear meant the disciples didn't take the time to see Jesus for who he was as he passed by. And this little phrase, Mark 6:48b, he meant to pass by them, is so strange. It's out of place. It's caused tons of questions over the years, but it's the key to this whole passage. Did Jesus want to walk past the disciples and beat them to the other side? Or did the disciples think that it seemed like his intention was to ignore them and just pass by like on a sidewalk? There are sillier sillier explanations of of, of Jesus trying to mess with his disciples, but that's not what's going on here. What these words actually mean, that he meant to pass them by, is to show them who he was. It's a demonstration or a revelation. (coughs) Bible Scholars call this a theophany. Theo for God and phanos for to show. So to pass by is the language of God revealing himself, and we've seen it before. It's just like the burning bush with Moses or the smoking pot with Abraham. This then is Jesus holding his disciples by the face and saying, look at me, see who I am. So this phrase takes on an entirely different meaning. Mark's language tells us that when Jesus walked on the water, God is revealing himself. And it's just like when the Lord tells Elijah to stand on the mountain because he is about to pass by. And he's not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but he's in the quiet of a whisper. The lesson of this miracle screams to them from Israel's history. From the pages of the Old Testament, God shows himself, he reveals himself with the phrase, I will pass by. And Mark is very purposeful in using it. Listen then to how God says the same thing to Moses in Exodus 33. Listen to the phrase, pass by, repeated here. When Moses said, please show me your glory, And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. 
and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you can stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. David Garland writes, God cannot be fully seen, but Jesus can. The one who comes to the disciples on the sea is not simply a successor of Moses who fills baskets with bread in the desert. Only God can walk on the sea. And the disciples have been summoned by Jesus to pass through the waters, and Jesus, the great I am, is with them. He is showing himself to them in a much different way than a man walking on water. This is Jesus, God himself, showing himself in glory to those who need a big dose of theophany. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, there are two Greek words used throughout the Septuagint for the phrase, I am. The first is ego, and we get the word ego from it nowadays. The second is imi, and it means to be, or I am. So in translating the sacred name of God, Yahweh, often the two are put together, and Sproul says, they're not stuttering, it's not I am, I am. It is, I am that I am, or what I am. So Jesus is saying, take heart, fear not, I am is with you. And the glory of God covered in flesh, in Jesus the man, is revealed in power and magnificence on the sea. Verse 51 and he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Jesus does not rescue his disciples out of the sea, but joins them and enables them to continue onward. How often do you and I pray, rescue me, Lord, save me from this, instead of be with me, Lord, be near me. And just like Psalm 23 from our last message in Mark, the good shepherd does not pluck us out of danger, but he feeds us and he cares for us in the midst of danger, looking after all of our needs, though we experience peril and trouble on all sides. It's Jesus' very presence that protects his children. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were astonished, for they had not understood about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And this is the strangest of all statements. When Jesus entered the boat, 
the storm ended and the disciples were utterly astounded because they didn't understand about the loaves. How do the loaves and the storm connect? Why is their astonishment still lingering over loaves and fish? And the explanation comes in the final words. Because their hearts were hard. It's because the disciples were not yet able to see. They couldn't see the presence of God in Christ. They're still blind to the the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus. Now, they should have seen it clear, clearer and clearer as signs and wonders stack up all around them, but they just could not. In talking about this passage with a friend this week, he reminded me that it's not our thick skulls that prevent us from seeing God, but our hard hearts. Intellect plays no part in spiritual understanding, only spiritual aliveness. The heart must be thawed in order that we see God. In Luke 16, Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, where from the torment of hell, the rich man asks if Lazarus could dip his finger in water and cool his tongue, to which Abraham says that is not possible. And then the rich man says to Lazarus, warn my brothers. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they won't listen to them, then even the warnings of a dead man will fall on deaf ears and blind eyes. The disciples have seen and heard the miraculous again and again, but Mark tells us that they still could not see God in Christ. Like that spiritual function was completely cut off. The healings and the miracles and the feeding of the 5,000 and the theophany of Jesus walking on water. And they could not yet see. It wouldn't penetrate because they were unable to see spiritually. Their hearts remained hard. So they were astonished by all this, but not awakened, because that's the realm of God alone. Friends, when miracle upon miracle stack up all around you, and you see Christians living completely out of character lives, ones of love, where they used to hate, ones of courage where there used to be fear, generosity instead of selfishness, self-control instead of lasciviousness, lives marked by peace in their storms and a gentle response in the wake of violence or greed or untruth. When you see Christians acting in changed ways, You need to ask, what is the revelation of God in your life? Have I seen it? Or have I missed it because my heart was hard? It is the Lord, 
that softens. It is his process of sanctification. It is the gift of God in Christ. And it's something that we are called to pray for. You pray for me that my heart would be softened. I'll pray for you. The answer to all the grief and trouble and sin and strife in your life and mine is to know God more. He is revealing himself. This then is the glory of God in Christ. Look for him. God is manifest most clearly to us in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He is the good shepherd. He is in sovereign control of all things. He teaches us. He feeds us. He rescues us despite our rebellion. And he is worthy of our praise and submission today. God is good and able. He is good and he is able. He is in control over every sunrise and every single storm. Your whole responsibility is to know God more. Decide like Paul to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Who you are, Lord, is bigger than our minds can carry. Your abilities, your character, your love, more than we can fathom. And yet, again and again, through scripture, through nature, through relationships that we are a part of every day, you are revealing yourself and your goodness. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray that instead of looking at the storm, we would look at you. We would search scripture. We would call for prayer. We would seek you with complete abandon because you are good and you are able. Your promises are good. Your word is good. You are faithful, Lord. Be with us. Amen.